It's a great reminder that the church is not a building. The church is a people. The church is no more a building than a house is a family. So we can pick up and move wherever we need to go. I encourage you to consult the website this week. We're going to do the best we can to keep you informed about where we're going, how we're going to do this thing. We don't know how long we're going to be without our building. Uh, it's not a big deal, really. I think he's kind of groomed us for this and prepared us for this. So uh, really the blessing is that nobody was hurt and that the church wasn't injured. The building was, but the church wasn't. So let's, uh, as we ease into worship and uh, worship in the Word, uh, let's thank the Lord for keeping our, our church safe. Lord, we thank you so much for this time that we have together to climb into this book. Lord, we pray that you will just open the eyes of our hearts and reveal to us more about our Lord and more about ourselves. Pray that as a result of this worship in the Word, worship in truth, that we leave different than we came, and that what we engage today actually invades Tuesday and dining room, and den, and love life, and checkbook, and every area, then your godness and the godness of Jesus Christ impacts us. Lord, we also thank you as a people that you protected our church this week, and that our brothers that were manning equipment, or were building, or working, are breathing, and are worshiping with us today. Lord, we are thankful that that is just a building and that it's not the church. We're thankful that the people can gather wherever you'd have us gather. Lord, we love you so much. We turn this time over to you for your glory and for your, for your use. Pray that you'll find a people that are attentive. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. This is a worshiper's sermon. <clears throat> I'm strangely comfortable with it because... In contrast to last week, it has very few illustrations. Last week was just so illustrative in so many different ways. But this week, the illustration is Jesus. He is actually illustrating something else. So to try and illustrate that further would be to diminish who and what we're engaging this morning. What we're going to do in these next few minutes is we're going to climb into the mind of an ancient writer. It's a guy we've been studying for the last six years, but we're going to climb into his mind and try and understand the sweep of this letter that he's written. Problem is, very seldom do we sit and read the book of John in one sitting. Considering how we've preached through it and studied it for the last six years, we might just take a little nibble. The problem is, when you do that, you don't get the big sweep. You don't get the big picture. You don't get, get themes that begin to emerge. So what we're going to do today is we're going to climb into the mind of John, and we're going to learn more about our Jesus. That's why it's a worshiper sermon. Because worshipers aren't just collecting facts on Jesus. Worshipers are enjoying truths about Jesus. So we're going to engage this and learn more about Jesus, and I hope and pray we're going to learn more about ourselves through looking at a dude named Phil. So we'll begin with our passage, John chapter 14. You're going to need your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you can look on with somebody, or maybe uh, if that's not possible, you can just for future reference know that that's, uh, that's what we eat. John chapter 14, verse 1, for the sake of context, I'll begin there. Jesus is speaking to his disciples hours before he goes to the cross. These next few chapters are a sea of red letters where he's just sharing, in many ways, his last words before he goes to this cross with the guys he spent three years with. <clears throat> it says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. 
believe also in me. It could be translated, you believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your hearts be troubled. It's not a suggestion, although it looks like it is. In the original language, it's commandment. Don't remain troubled, guys. They're starting to get the reality that he's going somewhere where they can't go. And they're also dealing with the reality that one of them has left the table of fellowship. Judas has left as the betrayer, so they're troubled. Don't be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said, "Uh, uh, Jesus, (laughs) a question. Lord, we don't know where you're going How can we even know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Ordinary Phil says to him, "Uh, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? That's where we're going to end or that's where we're going to focus on this verses 7 through 9, this conversation before and after and during Philip. With a troubled heart, Philip asked to see the Father. His request is, just show us the Father and everything will be okay. I'm still troubled. I appreciate what you're saying. But just show me the Father and everything will be good. We're first going to unpack what is being said about Jesus here, and then we're going to look at Phil. And I hope and pray that that's going to then look at you and me. Let's start with Jesus. To really understand what's being said about Jesus, I want us to look back at the beginning of the conversation with John, John chapter 1. Years ago, we were back here, and it's so good to go back to it because John chapter 1 is sort of like a table of contents for the rest of the book. There's some incredible, like, truth concentrate realities in the first chapter of John that are explained and exposed in the rest of the book. John chapter 1, verse 18, John, the writer, presents a problem. And this is a serious problem. The problem he presents are these words. He says, no one has ever seen God. That's the problem. And that's the problem that he's going to explain and expose over the rest of the book. The reality is that no one has ever seen this God who, if we're going to connect last week with this, who spoke the Pleiades into existence. Who said, let there be Pleiades. And 250 sons went, whoosh, formed up into like a herd of celestial cattle moving in the same direction. No one's ever seen that God and lived. No one's ever seen this God that filled the swamps with noisy critters. We can't see this God who breathed life into man. He is not visible to us, although he used to be. He used to be visible to a man named Adam and a woman named Eve. They used to walk together in the cool of the day. But then they sinned and something happened. They were evicted 
from the garden. And the reality is we can't see him either. Not just because of our sin, but also because of our relationship to Adam and Eve. We too have been evicted from that walking in the cool of the day relationship. We can't see God because of our sin. We have separated ourselves from him and we can't fellowship with him directly and see his face because he is holy and we are not. Only holiness can approach holiness. So there's a serious problem. No one has ever seen God. We have been removed from this garden, distance from God by our own doing. And for John, this is a serious problem. No one has ever seen God. I'll turn to John chapter 3. You may not even have to turn. Look at there at the verse, first verse of John chapter 3. <clears throat> there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night, and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him. He's asking, how are you doing these great tricks, Jesus? And Jesus answered him with what he needs to know. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, I'm about to tell you something that's just ultimate reality. Unless one is born again or reborn, reborn from above, he cannot, what, see the kingdom of God. See, there's a problem in the book of John. No one has ever seen God and left with our own birth, our first birth, our physical birth. We can't even see his kingdom. We can't even experience what God is doing left to our own birth. No one has ever seen God. And unless one is reborn from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God We are blinded by sin, separated from our maker, and separated from his kingdom. And something outside of us has to happen to us in order for us to engage both of them. You can't muster it. It's not something that you have inside. And now here's the really terrible thing. If no one's ever seen God, and we can't even see his kingdom, here's the terrible thing in the book of John. Turn to John chapter 17. Here's the really bad news. John chapter 17, verse 3. Jesus is praying the high priestly prayer for his followers. That, at that time, even for us, he's praying for us. And he says these words in verse 3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, in John, he equates seeing with knowing. And the problem is, is that if we can't see him, we can't know him. And if we can't know him, then we have no eternal life. That's the problem. See, it's no small thing that we can't see God. Because if we can't see him, according to this dude that wrote this letter 2,000 years ago, inspired by the living God, we can't see him. We can't know him. And if we can't know him, we have no eternal life. See, this is our story, people. This would be like you sitting with your mom and dad and hearing about how you came into being. Where they started talking about having kids and how they had no money. And where they lived in this one-room house and they had to walk uphill both ways to work. 
You know how the story goes. You're hearing your story and you're tuned in because you're hearing about your beginnings. That's what's being exposed right here. This is our story. No one has ever seen God. We can't even see his kingdom. We're in a desperate situation. But here's the beauty. Our God doesn't leave us in that situation. Our God takes the initiative and does something about it. Turn to John chapter 6. Oh, this is good news. John chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. See, the good news is we're not left in this condition where we can't see God and we can't see his kingdom because it's God's will to make a way out. And it's God's will that those who are the lookers at Jesus will now be the seers. And then hence the knowers. For in John, seeing is knowing and knowing is believing. And all those things are caught up and intertwined in the person of Jesus Christ. He has to be where we're looking. If we're looking anywhere else, we're not really seeing. John chapter 9, just flip over there. I'm not going to unpack the whole chapter, but I want to show you that he illustrates what we're talking about here, that we're in a desperate situation. He gives us a visual, a story to help us understand how grave this is. Some of you might be able to imagine what blindness is like. Some of you might live with it. And know what it's like to nail furniture every day. Not some days, every day. Some of you might know what it's like to be dependent on other people for every step. He gives us a visual of how grave our situation is by showing us a blind dude that's sitting at the city gate with a cup out like this saying, can I have some money? I can't even provide for myself because I'm blind. I'm hopeless and helpless, but our Jesus sees him, and our Jesus goes to him. Our Jesus takes the initiative and doesn't leave us in that blindness. It's an amazing story, a beautiful story about a man that's healed and a man that testifies about what's happened to him. And he illustrates our condition. Look at verse 35. Here's what happens when the blind man now looks to Jesus. He was cast out of the synagogue for testifying about Jesus. And then in verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And this blind dude, excuse me, formerly blind dude says, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Let me at him. And Jesus said to him, you know what? You've seen him. You've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped. That word for worship is a picture of him being on his face. This dude that just hours before is like this, after a lifetime of begging, a lifetime of nailing furniture, a lifetime of dependency, not knowing which way he's going, not being able to provide for himself, 
is now seeing. And seeing is knowing. And knowing is believing. And believing is worship. Do you see it? Another picture, just a snapshot. Since we're close to this, John 11, verse 45, just a snapshot. Jesus has just raised Lazarus from the dead. It says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. For John, seeing is knowing, knowing is believing. But you got to go back to the problem. Nobody has ever seen God. And then you got to look to the solution that's developing right here. Look at John chapter 12, verse 45. Jesus says, and whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees the one that was previously unseeable. Do you see the beauty of that? You see that in Jesus. And then John chapter 14, the passage where we're looking today. If you had known me, you would have known my father. Also from now on, Tom, from now on you do know him and you have seen him. No one has ever seen God. And the problem is we need to because seeing is knowing. Knowing is believing. Believing is eternal life we got to see him. And that will only be accomplished in Jesus Christ. Turn back to John chapter 1. We're going to take another sweep at this. I want you to appreciate the gravity of what's being said here. Because it's just remarkable. Since we're not fact collectors, but we're truth worshipers, I want us to worship this from a different direction. Or worship this reality that God is revealed in the Son John chapter 1, verse 18, it's a passage I just read. No one has ever seen God, but look how it continues. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. That first part of that passage, no one has ever seen God, is less about God being invisible. He's not like this creature, that, this invisible man that we just can't see. It is about his being unviewable. It is about his being unseeable. Moses asked to see him. God, just show me your glory. You remember the story from a couple weeks ago, Exodus chapter 32 through 34 range. Just show us your glory. God says, you know what? You can't handle it. I'm going to stick you in this little crack in this rock, and maybe you'll be able to crack one little eye open once I pass by, and you can see the ebbing glory of my departure. And you know what that did? That was so amazing that that left Moses' face aglow. Moses came down the mountain looking like a light bulb. See, the reality is he is unseeable. He is unviewable. I want to show you a couple pictures. Turn to Exodus chapter 40. This is such good news when you engage realities like this. Exodus chapter 40 that's on page 80 if you have an ESV <laughs> I so love this then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
uh-oh, this thing that I, he's entering all the time, I can't even go up in there because God's in there. This unseeable, unviewable God is in the house, and I can't even step in the house because of his white, hot glory. If I'm to step in there, I will actually be consumed as a sacrifice in his presence. Here's my favorite picture. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. This is really cool. It cracks me up too. I, just envisioning what I'm about to share with you. 1 Kings chapter 8. It's on page 287 of your ESV. In verse 10 of chapter 8, it says, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord. That cloud isn't like they didn't light something on fire accidentally and smoke starts filling the temple. That is the Lord showing up in the tabernacle. That is God's actual presence in the tabernacle. It's called the Shekinah glory in our Old Testament. So the Shekinah glory shows up in the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So just envision this. The priests are in the tabernacle. They're doing their job. They're sacrificing and all kind of stuff. They just brought the Ark of the Covenant in there. But the Shekinah glory shows up and these guys are bailing out of the tabernacle like uh, Jack Bauer running out of a building before a bomb goes off. They're diving out of that son of a gun. God is in the house. i got to get out of this tabernacle. Because the Shekinah glory just showed up. I can't be hanging out in a tabernacle right now. Because this God is unseeable. This God is unviewable. But here's the beauty of Jesus. Turn back to John chapter 1. This is the beauty. This is the sweetness of this message. John chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt in Greek means pitched his tent. That would mean, we could translate that. In fact, some older versions translate it this way. And the Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Here's the crazy reality of Jesus. Is that the previously unseeable, unviewable glory of God has shown up now in the tabernacle of Jesus Christ. In the old tabernacle made of canvas, when just a little bit of his glory would show up, they got to bail out like Jack Bauer. Get out of here. We can't see him. We can't view him. But now the glory of God has shown up in its fullness in the tabernacle of Jesus Christ, and we can actually behold this glory. That's craziness. If we were Jews, if we grew up a Jew... And we experienced, if we watched the tabernacle with priests bailing out, running for their lives, if we saw Moses wanting to go in there, but he couldn't go in there because there's smoke pouring out and the white hot glory of God was pouring out. 
We now got the news that that unviewable, unseeable glory of God is now viewable and seeable. We would go, where? Let me see it. That's good news. I want to know where that is. I want to actually engage that. As God dwelled in a canvas tabernacle in the Old Covenant, now he dwells in a flesh tabernacle in the New, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's good news. As God could be experienced and engaged and man could dwell with God in the tabernacle or around the tabernacle. As he worshiped in the tabernacle. So now God can be experienced and engaged and man can dwell with God in the tabernacle of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He used to be in and among his people. And now we can actually dwell in him in the person of Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus has a new tabernacle. In the old covenant, the unseeable, unviewable God pitched a tent with human flesh, and that tent was made of canvas. In the new covenant, the previously unseeable, unviewable God has pitched his tent in human flesh, and now he can be seen and known and beheld. That's good news. That's why he can say to ordinary Phil, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. No one has ever seen God, but God the Son has made the Father known. That has got to be good news for worshipers. That's got to be a sweet reality. Now, I want to bring us back to ordinary Phil. Last week, we had a pretty amazing glimpse of glory. We imagined a, a roof that was retractable. We tried to do that this week, accidentally. But we imagined this roof that could come back in our sanctuary. We could behold the glory of God in creation, the stars, the galaxies, the Pleiades, the unbuckling the belt of Orion in one grain size sand space beyond the Big Dipper. We realized that they identified 1,500 galaxies with millions of suns in them, and we realized we could put a grain of sand in any direction, and it's just going to be more of the same. And that all of that glory testifies to God's, all that space and expanse testifies to God's glory. Last week, we considered a God that can bind up the sweet influences of the Pleiades, can gather up 250 suns. Anybody? Anybody do that? Job? Can you do that? Can huddle up 250 sons into one herd. Last week we considered a God that made behemoth eat grass. A God that could go fishing for Leviathan. We considered a God that every cicada, every cricket, every bullfrog, every whippoorwill is known by. A God that knows every single creature like he named every single one of those billions of stars. And last week we marveled at the might and creativity of our God. And then we considered that we had to connect it to the law. Because left by its own we'd be a bunch of pantheists. We considered that God spoke and that God revealed his, his intention, his plan, his will in this thing called the word. And together as a people, like last week, we considered that that word should run through our lives like that train shaking the earth. 
And I wonder this week as we are considering Jesus as God, and God is revealed in the Son, I wonder if what Jesus has said is really authoritative to us. Do we really look at Jesus like he's God? Do we really listen to Jesus like he's God? Does what Jesus has said, does what Jesus say really impact what we say and think and do? Or do we just gather up weekly and just kind of wonder about that? Does it really invade our Tuesday, our den, our dining room, our checkbook, our schedule, our cubicle, our relationships? Or I was just Jesus. Man, I had to consider this as I was thinking about Phil's response to Jesus. Basically, what he said to Jesus, let's look again what he said to him. You don't need to turn there. I'll share with you. He said, Lord, just show us the Father, and that's enough for us. I was looking at what Phil said, and I, said, I thought to myself, man, do I do that? Where I say, Jesus, what else you got? You're not enough for me. Show me or tell me something else. Show me what I want to see. Show me something that's truly impressive. I think we have more in common with ordinary Phil than we may realize because we so want to see what we want to see, and that will be enough for us. We so want to hear what we want to hear, and that will be enough for us. While we may say we believe in the unseeable and unviewable God being seeable and viewable in Jesus, does our response to this Jesus reflect that? Or do we say to Jesus, what else you got? If it's our job to connect the dots, if we're going to engage, really, does this impact our Tuesday? Then we have to ask the question, if the godness of Jesus really has any bearing on our lives. Do we see the Pleiades hanger in Jesus? Do his words make us quake? Do his words invade our Tuesday and our den and our dining room? Let's go to Matthew chapter 5 for an exercise. I want to take you all on to finish up our morning. I want to warn you, it's going to be an uncomfortable exercise. I will be shocked if anybody leaves here unscathed in the next couple minutes. Words from Jesus. Diagnostically considering, or considering are they brought to bear on how we live in love? Do the words of this Jesus impact us aggressively <laughs> at all? Listen to these words from one hillside on one afternoon from one sermon from this God revealed, this unseeable, unviewable God now revealed in the seeable and viewable Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Man, we like that. Because most of us, I think, I hope all of us can walk away from that and go unscathed. Haven't killed anybody. If some of you have, God is redemptive. And he can forgive even that. 
But most of us walk away from that saying, man, that's enough for us. But Jesus keeps talking. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. He takes the same reality for murder, liable to judgment, and he puts it right next to anger with your brother? Wait a second. Could we potentially just say, oh, that's just Jesus. (laughs) You know, he's kind of radical. I'll take God's plan. The Father, please. Not what Jesus has said. He says, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother, that's the next step. That word there in the original language is the word raka. And it probably means something like imbecile. Ever call anybody an imbecile in anger? That's even worse than being angry because you've said it. And you can't take that word back. You've insulted them and you'll be liable to the council. And here's the ultimate level. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That word there for you fool is essentially saying you rebel. You apostate. It's the same sort of language that Moses used about the nation of Israel that kept him from being able to go into the promised land. Does that make you swallow hard? You ever said that about anybody? This week? But ah, it's just Jesus. Man, we can do that. When I read this, I thought, do do I just do that? Oh, it's just Jesus. I think we all have a high view of, of of our Lord Jesus, but we've got to engage this and say, do we see him as the Pleiades hanger? Do we see him as the one that gathers up 250 sons? Do we see him as the one who speaks and our world is rocked? Or do we dismiss it as, oh, that's just, that's just too much. He goes on to say, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Does that impact any of us? Do any of us say, you know what? Corporate worship is coming up Sunday. I cannot step into the presence of the Lord with the people of God, eating the book, giving an offering of tithes or offerings or whatever, knowing that I'm crossways with my brother. I can't do it. I've got to find them. I don't, I don't know where they are. I've got to get them on the phone. I've got to get teleconference or something. I need to be in their presence so we can reconcile before I go engage the living God because God said it. Or is it, oh, that's just Jesus. That's just Jesus. It's not seriously, but it's God said it. Now, I'm using, I realize that's sort of a caricature. I don't think anybody thinks about Jesus like that. Not anybody I know. But if we look at this diagnostically, then all of us have got to swallow hard and go, wait a minute. Has that ever been brought to bear on my life? Where I've got to reconcile with somebody that I've wronged. Let me tell you something. Christy and I, it doesn't happen so much now. We're really wonderfully, happily married. We are. <laughs> I realize sometimes when I tell our stories, people could think, man, they really didn't. I am so blessed to be with that woman right there. She's a dandy. But the funny thing is, over the years, we used to have our worst fights on Sunday mornings, trying to get ready for worship. For, for worship. Isn't that ironic? Tell me there isn't a devil Worst fights on Sunday mornings, trying to get the kids dressed. We got to get to church. 
gets her narrow behind in a car. <laughs> Some of our worst fights on Sunday mornings. And then we go sit kind of cool with each other, sitting next to each other in corporate worship. But God spoke and said, that can't happen. God spoke and said, a woman and a man who's married to each other or a child and a father or a youth and a mother should engage each other before they step into the presence of God and say, you know what? I'm sorry. God said we can't engage him right now rightly. We've got to reconcile. Please forgive me. Does that invade this Sunday? Will it invade next Sunday? That God said it. Will it be brought to bear? Let's look at lust. Verse 27. You've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Looking at a woman with lust, men, is like cheating on your wife. Because you could hear what God said, you know, don't commit adultery. I'm like, oh, I have never done that. But if you've thought it and you've engaged it and you've scoped out porn or you've looked at a woman with lustful intent, you have cheated on your wife. You have wronged the living God because God said so. Does that create in you this men? I've seen figures of how many Christ-professing men are engaging pornography. It's startling. How many of you are taking your computer and throwing it on a doggone ground, stomping on it, gouging out the eye? How many of you are saying, I'm done with computer work? I'm going to go build a house. How many of you are arm hacking in your approach to holiness? Because God said it. Can we be, oh, well, just Jesus. I hadn't cheated on my wife. Does the earth quake when Jesus speaks for you? Does it engage your Tuesday? Let's look at divorce. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. In the mind of the Jew, man, divorce was really no big deal. It was pretty common. It was probably as common then as it is now. Hey, God just said, be sure and offer a certificate of divorce. Be sure and record it. No big deal. And Jesus says, oh, man, that's not it. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, really where she has made herself an adulterer, makes her commit adultery. Does that make the ground tremble? He's assuming that she remarries. If she remarries... Having divorced, she makes herself an, or he makes her an adulterer unless through some sort of infidelity she's already made herself an adulterer. That's not a clause. That's not an out clause. That's a paradigm that we've been forced into. He's saying he makes her an adulterer or she makes herself an adulterer by doing it on her own. And then he goes on to say, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Could we be guilty of just, oh, that's just Jesus? <laughs> I, really, I told you, everybody's going to leave here. Nobody's going to leave here unscathed. I know many of you that have been previously married. And many of you who are now remarried. And God, thankfully, we serve an incredibly redemptive God that can use even that. And I see God using you. But for the sake of the future of our families and the future of our church, we've got to lift high the standard of what God intends for marriage, that it's for life. When God says he hates divorce, does the, does the earth shake? Does it invade our love life? Does it invade what our, our description of loneliness is? I've got to get remarried because I'll be lonely otherwise. Does it cramp your style? It must. God has spoken. Families that have gone through divorce or remarriage need to sit with their kids and say, you know what? Jesus spoke. God spoke. And the earth shakes. And I repent from that. Your mom and I are now married. And God has blessed that. But our hope and prayer for you is that you don't go through what we went through. That you do it right. And that you fight for flourish with your wife of your youth. Because God said it. Man, we negotiate. We are swindlers. And I'm the best of them. So any of you who are thinking that we're condemning those who've been previously married, I told you nobody will leave here unscathed. The next section talks about oaths. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. That seemed like a small deal. Not really, because God said it. When the people of God say something, it should just plain be, period. Hey, Luke, I do this to my kids all the time. I was convicted about this a while back. Hey, Luke, we're going to do this tomorrow. Tomorrow comes and goes. Luke says, Daddy, you never did that. And my yes didn't mean yes, or my no didn't mean no. And if I'm putting on display the character of my God to my son... I want my yes to be yes. People of God should be serious. This should shake the earth for us. That our yes means yes. Let's look at retaliation. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Anybody? (laughs) Any of you men okay with that? And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, that's like your shirt, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Is that brought to bear on your life? I took the boys turkey hunting this week to Menard, Luke and uh, Daniel. And there's a foreman on this lease, my dad's lease. And uh, this foreman out, out here is the guy that runs the cattle on this lease. And this dude is, I'm just telling you, he is not a nice guy. I'm not going to call him an imbecile <laughs> or a fool. I don't know what his state with the Lord is. But I'm going to tell you, he is, he is a bad dude. He causes more trouble with more people out there. He picks fights. And I saw him out there. In fact, I, I, I often prepare myself for things in advance. What if I see Joe Dale? That's his name, Joe Dale. <laughs> you can see a dude named Joe Dale wearing a cowboy hat wanting to pick a fight. 
What if I see Jodell? Mm, it's going to be bad. But then I was preparing for this sermon. I'm like, wait a second. What if I do see Jodell? And what if he comes up and slaps me all up in my face? Will I be okay with that? Or is it, oh, it's just Jesus. Do I see that as commandment? Do I see that as God spoke and my earth shakes that invades my Wednesday at a hunting lease or my Thursday morning when I actually did see Joe Dale? He didn't slap me, if you're wondering. It's got to invade it. Or can we really call him God? Or is he just kind of our counselor that we could pick and choose? I like that. I don't like this. One more. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. What he's saying there is that our God indiscriminately blesses everybody with rain, with sun. And this whole paragraph ends with, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's not saying you got to be perfect like he's perfect. He's saying you got to be consistently merciful as he is consistently merciful, loving his enemy, fellow enemy. Do you get this? Do you see why he's saying that? He's saying because this is what I've done to you. I've loved you, enemy. Now you go love your enemies. Usually we have the thought that one good turn deserves another. But for the people of God, one bad turn deserves another because of what's been done to us. Here's the reality. Man, he goes on talking. Unfortunately, he keeps on going talking about dealing with the needy, talking about fasting, talking about prayer, talking about money talking about anxiety, talking about worry. And I encourage you, continue reading at your own peril. Please continue reading at your own peril. And realize that if we are to take what this man, this man that spoke as the words of God, it will mean your undoing. It will show up on Tuesday if he's truly your God. It will invade your love life. Or we could be like Phil asking, what else you got? <laughs> Can I go with a different plan? Something else would be enough for me. What this little uncomfortable exercise should do for every single one of us. Three things briefly. I'm going to hit them fast. First, it should make us swallow hard when Jesus speaks. The God that clothes the lily, the God that tends to the fallen sparrow, the God that named every one of these billions of stars, the God that knows every cicada, spoke when Jesus speaks. And we've got to listen. The one who made you and numbered your days and numbered the hairs on your head spoke. And we've got to listen. Second thing, it should make us urgent about obedience. It should show up on Tuesday. I told you this year, 2009, is the year of obedience. 
In John chapter 14, it says, the one who loves me will obey my commandments. If you say you love him, yet you deal with things like this selectively, you don't love him. You love yourself. You've traded the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. You come up with your own plan. That'll be enough for me. Because what you have is not enough. That's what we do when we trade his plan in. This should make us urgent about obedience. It's got to show up in your Tuesday, in your den, in your living room, in your love life, in your workspace. That's what obedience is. And last, it should make us really grateful for grace. It should make for this extremely weird people who are blown away by grace that's covering us in the blood of Jesus Christ. As we look at these things, we shouldn't just go, oh, grace is sweet, and then Jesus said that. Good thing grace covers us. We ought to do everything in us to obey these things. And for those times where we fail him, man, we better celebrate grace. We better celebrate his forgiveness. We better celebrate the fact that he sees us through the blood of Jesus. And that's the only detergent that cleanses our sin. And it should make for a really humble people too. We ought not be able to make each other mad. (laughs) We ought not be able to hurt each other's feelings considering how wronged the living God is by us, every last unscathed one of us. Can you imagine a church like that? Crosspoint has been mostly that, very seldom. It's been crazy. But it's one Saturday, one Sunday, one Thursday away from us getting crossways with each other. It ought not be. People of God ought to keep an incredibly reconciled list with each other because of grace, because of the grace lavished on us. No one has ever seen God, but the unseeable, unviewable God is seeable, viewable, and knowable in Jesus the Son. That's good news. Let me pray. God, I just pray with everything in me that this invades our Tuesday, that this invades our den and our dining room. That the words of Jesus are authoritative in our lives. That we see that you are viewable and seeable and knowable in the person of Jesus Christ. And that we become true Jesus people that love him with everything in us. That we become a people that freeze and listen when Jesus speaks. And that with everything in us to our own undoing, that we do everything to obey Lord, we beg for that. We beg for, I beg for that in me right here. I pray for Ben McGraw first. I pray that for my family, for Christy. I pray that for Evan, Luke, and Daniel. And I pray that for every shepherd in this body, that this will find purchase Jesus as God. And that his words will have ultimate authority in our lives. That will not just be an add-on, but it will invade every area of our life. I pray that we will celebrate and worship as families that 
You as unviewable and unseeable are now seeable and viewable and knowable and believable in this person of Jesus Christ. I pray that it just makes us this steely-eyed Jesus people that are recklessly with abandon loving Jesus and jettisoning all the cares of the world. Or we beg for this. We can't muster it. We can't create it. It's not in us. If it's your will, we pray that you'll do it in us. We pray these things in Jesus' precious, holy, perfect name. Amen. Let's worship in song. Uh, We'll keep you in the know about where we're going to be, but it'll be a surprise if our sanctuary is fixed before Sunday. So we may be on the move for a period of time. Uh, If we're here, maybe do what some folks have done and bring a chair or a bench. You know, you can use those cool bench seats or something like that. Or if you're just tough, you can, I'm not saying the rest of you aren't, but um, that would be uncool. Uh, You know, hang in there. But I appreciate your attentiveness this morning. I know it's a different setting, but man, we're the church, so church happens where we are, and I appreciate that church happened this morning. I appreciate y'all's engaging it. Um, One thing I'll share with you, I think the Titus ladies are meeting tonight. There's some bulletins on the table as you leave, so you can get kind of schooled up on what's going on there, or you can check out our website this afternoon when you get home. But I want to share a passage with you as we leave. This is Paul uh, writing to a church at Ephesus. He's writing to a bunch of believers. Okay, get this. He's writing to believers, and he says this, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, he's praying for believers, that God may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. See, this is a journey that we're on, people. It's not just a one-time deal where, bam, I remember the day that I came to Christ. My eyes were open, and that sure was sweet. That happens today and tomorrow and Tuesday. That you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Lord, we just pray that that enlightenment, enlightenment, the eyes of our hearts will be open today, tomorrow, that we may see and know and believe in a deeper, richer way every day, every week, that we're on this journey engaging you. Lord, guard us from just getting our church on. Find us intense about the things that matter. Find us attentive to matters of eternity, to matters of worship. Guard us from being distracted and busy. 
Lord, we pray that you were enjoyed this morning for your glory. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.